welcome to Storytelling. This week's guest is a TEDx speaker with 18 years of experience as a sociologist and a decade dedicated to fostering diversity, equity and inclusion. Her expertise has been instrumental in guiding individuals and organisations towards conquering hurdles of inequity. During her tenure as a university professor, she pioneered a distinctive approach to teaching sociology, making her scholarship accessible and transformative for families and communities alike. In this episode, she shares her personal journey and insights into why equity and inclusion are so vital in today's world. She'll also discuss the tangible changes we can all make to create a more inclusive and equitable society. Please welcome Dr. Matisa Wilborn. Hello, Dr. Matisa, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Debbie. So glad to be with you today. Dr. Matisa, equity and inclusion is really important to you. Can you explain to us why? Absolutely. So I grew up in a really small town in the U.S. in Kentucky called Hazard, Kentucky. I want to make sure I say that so everybody around the world knows that there's a little town in the Appalachian Mountains called Hazard. And as I grew up there, really homogenous in a lot of ways, it was a predominantly white area wonderful, amazing people all throughout. A lot of my family is there still, a coal mining town. So there are a lot of things to be happy and grateful about. I had an amazing childhood. In the U.S., we have something called Friday Night Lights. And that's this idea that on Friday nights, everybody is uh, in the fall is at the football game. And that really was sort of what my town was like. But once I went to college, I realized that for all of the amazing things that I received in my childhood, there definitely were some things that I was missing. There were deficits of culture. There was uh, deficits of difference. And so when I went to college, I was able to meet people from more urban areas and I was able to meet people with different backgrounds. And I just really thought about what an amazing community it made for there to be richer conversations. Those differences really helped me to see my own life from a different perspective, still understanding how great it was, but just wanting more. And that planted the seed for me. And I also, as I look back, thought about times when there were some microaggressions and times where people said things that were prejudiced that I sort of laughed off because that's what you did in that community But I realized that that wasn't okay, And so I wanted to just use all of those experiences, the good and the bad, and create this pathway so that I could, in part, help it to become better for us all. That's really how I got started. What would you identify as some of the major factors that may have affected you as a child to actually Mm -hmm. lead you to where you are your current day? So to the point that I made, it's interesting because socially I identify as Black, so I'm a Black woman. And as I grew up, I was with my family. We went to church, we went to reunions, we, and all of that. But in school, I was one of the only Black people, Black students in my classes. 
I was in the band. I'm so proud of that. I was in the band. It was a big deal for me back then. So even my extracurricular activities, I found myself being one of the only ones. And even though, as I said, I appreciated much of my experience, I can remember jokes that were told about Black people that, again, it's uncomfortable, but so that I could fit in, I kind of laughed it off. Like, they're not talking about me. I remember, Debbie, one particular time, one of my best friends, and she's a good friend to this day, was a white woman, white girl at the time, and she was a couple of years older than me. And I would go to her house all the time. She had her mother there. She had her older brother there, always at her house. We were always together, very, very close friends. We were both in the band. She played the saxophone. I played the trombone. But I remember having a conversation one time after I'd gone to her house and she said, Matisse, I got so mad at my mom and my brother this weekend. And I was like, what, what's going on? And she said they were watching television and it was a basketball game and predominantly Black players, and they made a bigoted remark towards those players. And she said that she couldn't believe it. And she said, well, Mom, Matisse's at our house all the time. How can you think that way? And her mom said, well, Matisse's not like the rest of them. And that story, however many years later, still sticks with me because what it said was she had an idea about Black people in general I just was an anomaly. I was an exception because I wasn't like the rest. And what I want to do with my work is to suggest, no, we're all very much similar. There might be differences in terms of our experiences and how that plays out, but I'm not an anomaly at all. In fact, I'm very much like a lot of the people that I grew up with. But I don't think everybody has had the same opportunities or there are just these stereotypes that society suggests for us. Part of my work, part of what I want to do is make sure that equity is at the forefront so that we all understand, no, we all have gifts. We all are very similar, more similar than we are different. And if we can make some of these things right in society, we'll see that. And I never held it against her mom. I went back to her house. I understood that experience and time sometimes makes us have those negative ideas and opinions. I just wanted to do the best that I could to live up to my highest potential so that she could see that it wasn't just me being the exception, but I am the rule. This also plays out today in companies because Mm -hmm. those stereotypes, they follow us through the years, whether Mm -hmm. you're the person making a microaggression, whether you realize it or not, or whether you're the person on the receiving end as well. Can you Mm -hmm. explain to us why it's important that we address that so it doesn't carry us all through the ages? A hundred percent. I love this question. And I actually, I do diversity, equity, and inclusion training, and I have the great privilege, and it's a privilege to me, to work with organizations across the U.S. from Baltimore to Tennessee to Atlanta. I've had the opportunity to work with organizations around this very thing. And there are a couple of components. One of them I call just culture. So the way we think as individuals, we're bringing our experiences, our backgrounds, our ideas about people, even if they're wrong, we're bringing them to the table within our organizations, whether we realize it or not. And then the other piece of that is structure. So policies, procedures, protocols, the things that we do 
either welcomes difference or even if unintentionally, it pushes difference away. And so for me, there are a couple of things that's important. Number one, it is just being aware of these biases. I can't tell you the number of people, Debbie, that I've talked to. And if I ask them on the outset, are you biased or do you maybe have biased perspectives about things? And say, we all do. We all have privilege in some form or fashion, but we also all have biases. Psychology tells us that our brain automatically categorizes biases just so that we'll know how to move in the world, what decisions to make. But if we don't stop the brain from making an irrational bias about an individual based on race or class or whatever demographic we're talking about, we'll find ourselves acting out on it. So it's okay if I'm biased about building being on fire because I don't want to be burned. So my brain automatically says, don't go in that building. But if my bias says, don't hire an individual who is a person of color because they're not going to be up to par then I have to stop that bias and say, "Mm, where does that come from? How do I make sure that I don't make decisions based on it? So the short answer to your question is we have to do both of those things. We have to look at our biases, how that plays out in terms of culture, but then also we have to examine our policies. And so I take organizations through what I call a DEI assessment because unintentionally we could be keeping out the best and the brightest based on policies written with these biases in mind. What would you say to someone who doesn't really understand the perspective from a black student or a black employee or someone of Mm -hmm. color going through that experience? You know, one of the things that I do when I do my training, I do this exercise that I call insider outsider. And essentially within this exercise, I ask everybody, no matter their background, to draw two circles. And I ask them the simple question within the circle, in the middle of the first circle that you draw, when have you felt like an insider? Meaning when have you felt like you belonged, like what you said matter, like your voice was heard. And then I ask them to do the same thing, a second circle. And there I ask them to talk about their experiences being an outsider. And it's interesting to me, Debbie, when we go through that process that people can pinpoint, you know, because it maybe it's not because of race, but maybe it's because of gender, or maybe it's because of religion, or maybe it's because of region from, you know, that they're from. And they're able to, at least for a second, kind of put themselves in the shoes of an outsider. And then I say to them, Do you realize that there are some people who always feel like they're an outsider? And for many of those folks, it's an aha moment because no, they can't fully understand what it means to be Black in America, but they do know what it's like maybe to be one of the only Muslims, or they know what it's like to be a female in a male-dominated area, and they can't get a glimpse of what that means. When I think about my own experience, we understand that sometimes your identities intersect. So I was identified as a woman, as a Black woman, and then a Black woman from Appalachia. All of those things were important to me. I mean, people made fun of my accent to the point where I used to practice so that people wouldn't know that I was from Kentucky because if they heard, they would say, you know, pejorative things. Well, did you all not wear shoes? Because in Kentucky, it's a rural sort of area particularly in Appalachia, where I'm from, it's a very poor area. 
So people already had stereotypes based on my accent. As a woman of color, I can tell you, even as a professor with a PhD, education is supposed to be, for many people, the thing that equalizes us all. I had a student in my class that I'm teaching as we're having conversations around education say they thought I was only on campus teaching because of affirmative action, because they needed a black professor. Now imagine I am the authority in the room. I have earned a PhD and I have young student who probably heard this all of their lives that perhaps I'm only there because they needed a black face. I can tell you a colleague of mine who I taught beside an entire semester. He was an econ, Mm -hmm. right? He was an economics professor. I'm a sociology professor every single day. Yet when I would see him on campus, he would call me the wrong name. He would call me the name of one of the only other two black women on campus. For him, maybe that's not a big deal. But for me, if there are only three Black women who are in these positions, really, you should think enough to know me from the only other two women on campus. And the same professor, I remember him, he stopped me. We were just kind of talking as we were walking. And he says, where did you get your PhD? Wow. I could tell through the course of the conversation that he really wanted to either validate or invalidate my terminal degree. Because if you got it from certain places, then it's not as prestigious or, and he was known for doing that sort of thing. So from students to to faculty colleagues, you've got this question mark that hangs over your head all the time. So I would ask somebody who's wondering what difference does that make? How does it feel for you when you don't feel like you are made to belong, where you're not welcomed in a space that you've earned the right to be in, where you always have to prove yourself, no matter the fact that I was faculty council president, no matter that I worked directly with the president to do all of these amazing things on campus, really imposter syndrome turned on its head is having to prove yourself every single day whether it's in the classroom or it's with your peers on the boards wherein you served. And don't you find that tiring having to prove yourself so frequently? It was exhausting and it still is exhausting. It's interesting because somebody asked me just yesterday how you continue doing the work. And for me, to be honest, Debbie, 90% of the time, I see it as a privilege. It's it's a joy. I get to have these kinds of conversations. You know, there are plenty of times where students who thought one thing had aha moments. I remember a couple of years ago when George Floyd was murdered, and I know that was seen around the world. I had students that I taught who went on to become lawyers and various occupations. They inboxed me or emailed me and said, Dr. Matisse, Dr. Wilbin, this is why I took your class. Like I realize now, I didn't 100% get it then, but seeing what's happening in the world, seeing what's happening around this incident, I understand why you really wanted to help us. Those kinds of things mean the world to me. To answer your question though, it does get tiring. It can be exhausting because you're trying to convince people who aren't even living it every day. Mm -hmm. Not only am I trying to 
help people understand the plight, I'm still experiencing the microaggressions or sometimes the flat out discrimination. How do I refill my cup? I have these conversations. I talk with other people who are doing the work. Faith is a big part of that. I go to church and I get refilled and refueled. But I really believe there's a grace on me to do this work because I'm assigned to do it. This is the call for me. And can you tell us about the Disruptors University? Yes. Thank you so much for asking me about Disruptors. So I remember one time, Debbie, and this is, I'm so serious. I, um, I always find myself, no matter where I am, whether I'm serving on a board in the community, I'm serving on a board at school, I'm always the one raising my hand, asking the question, well, why are we doing it this way? And are we considering other groups, you know, particularly marginalized groups? I'm always that person. And that's a blessing and a curse because some people will look at me and say, okay, Matisa, I know you're going to ask the question. But then other people are like, I know Matisse is about to raise her hand and ask the question. But I remember asking God one time, I was like, why am I always that person? Why am I always the one that has this lens? Because I don't always do it to intentionally get under people's skin. Like that's the way I see the world. And I asked God one time, I was like, why is this me? And he simply said, because you are a disruptor. And this was some years ago. And I remember thinking, okay, okay, I get that, disrupt her. And so I went on to actually define it for myself. And a disrupt her is simply someone who dismantles the status quo, who keeps people out and rebuilds systems so that they are more inclusive and not just for women, but for all. So as time went on, I found myself in the company of women who wanted the confidence, who wanted to disrupt the patterns of imposter syndrome, disrupt those feelings of inadequacy, to do what I'm doing, to look at systems to say, hey, we could be better here as a society by re-looking at policies and re-looking at how we do business. And I found that these women who I was able to just kind of pour into and coach and assist, they became better. And they started disrupting, again, not necessarily education institutions like what I was doing, but within their families. They were disrupting patterns and cycles of uh, abuse, patterns and cycles of alcoholism, patterns and cycles that kept them systemically bound They were also going into their workspaces and asking hard questions that they wouldn't necessarily have the confidence to do before. And so that for me became a mission. And it is a mission. It's a passion. It's the opportunity to equip, empower, and educate women kind of in the ways that I've come to know myself. And that's to disrupt and to change. And that's what they've been doing. So Disruptors University was born out of that. It is a network of women who are willing to take the risk, to use their voice to make positive change for all. And that's really how it developed. Many people think of the word disrupt as a negative word, but it's not because what you're doing is actually very positive because you're wanting to change 
views, opinions and perspectives for the betterment of the world, as you have already mentioned. Can we clarify what do we mean by inclusion? Because not everyone fully understands what is meant by that term. Inclusion really is about understanding our unique differences, recognizing them and inviting them, not just to the table, but allowing individuals difference to actually help lead the conversation. This is a simple way that I talk to my clients and for a lot of people it helps. When we think about diversity, diversity is a fact. We're just different. People are different and that's just the way it is. Different in race, different in gender, different in whatever demographic you want to point it to. Different in terms of where we're raised and those experiences. Difference is a fact. When we think about equity, equity is about making sure that everybody has a a level playing field, no matter the difference. So even if I came from a hazard Kentucky, a coal mining town where education wasn't heralded as much, where we have all of these challenges, a place that's equitable, or when we think about equity, it is making sure that I have the same tools that gives me the same starting place as somebody whose parents all have PhDs and they've had PhD for five generations. When we think about inclusion, it's making sure that everything that I bring to the table is valued and it's utilized. So we we talk about the fact that diversity is saying all of this difference, let's invite everybody to the dance. So you might have purple people, you've got pink people, you've got orange people, everybody is at the dance. Inclusion, people always would say is, when you get to the dance, I'm going to invite you to do it. But I have a different understanding of inclusion. Inclusion is saying, not only are you invited to the dance, but I want you to help pick out the song. I want you to help make sure that the colors are inviting to all. So it's moving beyond saying, I'm going to give you a seat at the table, but it's saying, They have shared power, shared authority to make decisions at that table, just like everybody else. What would you say is the one main takeaway that you would like someone listening to our conversation to have? I think the one takeaway is we've all got the privilege and responsibility to make this world better by making it more equitable. Sometimes And I've seen this again within organizations, also at universities. We think because there is an office of diversity or if there's a chief equity officer, it's their job to make the organization equitable. Or if we've got an office of multicultural affair or the equivalent at a university, that it's their responsibility. Or often we think that if you're a member of the marginalized group, it's your responsibility to make it better. But what I want to say is we have, as humans, as citizens, we have both the privilege and the responsibility to make equitable decisions every day. We see these videos surfaced of people recording individuals being discriminatory. You have the opportunity in that moment to be equitable, to to use your voice to speak up, to say, why is it that it's okay that the security is following that Black man 
yet these individuals over here don't have that same security following them. I can use my voice as a citizen, no matter my background, to have an equitable outcome. At the same time, that's true for my company. One of the things that I got so tired of hearing about, Debbie, when I was at one of the universities where I worked, we would do searches for faculty members. And let's just say it's the chemistry department. And I would hear people say all of the time, there are no qualified professors of color in chemistry. Like this is not something that we typically see people of color, as an example, doing. We can't find them. And as a disruptor, not in a way that was negative, I would just raise the question and I would say, well, where are you looking? Are you looking, for example, at professional black organizations in chemistry as a place to find a professor? Or are you doing what we always did, which was look within your own networks? And we know that people tend to congregate with people who are very much like them. And just by me raising the question, it made a difference in terms of that particular search. Now, I wasn't the chief diversity officer at the time. I was just another colleague. But because my lens is one of equity, in my mind, I thought we need to be asking different questions. So that's the takeaway. What questions are you asking? Do you have a lens of equity, whether it's in your everyday life? if it's in your workplace, if it's in your faith community, why are we going about the business every day of doing what we've always done? Because when we do, we'll get what we always have. And and my purpose, my goal is to say, we're so much better than this. Like we could have such richer conversations and experiences and could go into a whole conversation about the business case that we know organizations and universities who really intentionally are equitable, they make more money. They have better outcomes. But my one takeaway would be use your lens to ask the right questions. And I believe if we all do that, we're all going to be better for it. Dr. Matisa, thank you for sharing that we all have a part to play. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It really was a pleasure. If you would like further details about equity and inclusion and about Dr. Matisa Wilbon, then please follow the link in the show notes.